In his new book, award-winning travel writer and photographer David Noyes shares beautiful photo images and tips that involve imagination. You have to be creative. You have to be imaginative to get the shots that you can get. Before CSI or NCIS, best-selling author Patricia Cornwell opened the door to forensic research 25 years ago with her literary character, Dr. Kay Scarpetta, who tackles another crime in Cornwell's newest book, Depraved Heart. The Children's Museum of Indianapolis offers visitors experiences they won't find anywhere else. We have an astronaut on staff who talks about those kinds of things in relevant ways that you can understand. And I mean, where else in the world really can you go and just talk to an astronaut? David Rockefeller Jr. is on a mission to save our seas. We'll share our 2009 interview with David and learn more about his ocean conservation message. We'll explore photography, crime writing, science, water conservation, and social responsibility. Just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Yachtsmen usually take to the ocean for fun, but philanthropist David Rockefeller Jr. has a different idea. As part of our Best Of series, we will share our 2009 interview with David as he prepared to participate in the Ocean Watch expedition to circumnavigate the Americas and boost awareness of the effects of global warming later in the hour. Also coming up on World Footprints, we'll talk to best-selling author Patricia Cornwell about her new book, Depraved Heart, the 25th anniversary with her famous crime-solving character, Dr. Kay Scarpetta, scuba diving, and more. We'll also go inside the Children's Museum of Indianapolis to experience cultural immersions, science, history, and important life lessons. That's just ahead. First up, David Noyes here. We had a chance to meet David at the recent North American Travel Journalist Conference in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And I was really impressed with David then, a two-time Lowell Thomas Award winner for his writing. For his writing? Yes. He really impressed me in terms of being the type of person we gravitate to because of his heart and just how he's using his platform to really make a difference in the world as we think about the Innocent Eyes Project, which he started. Right, to raise awareness about education. And the one thing about David's book that you'll learn more about in the interview is that when you flip through the pages and look at the powerful photographs and read the the, the, the words, his, his stories, which are incredibly powerful, that accompany the pictures, you'll be able to see his heart through his work, and that's something that I think speaks volumes. That in itself is transformative. Indeed. Award-winning travel writer and photographer David Noyes has learned to experience the world through more than his lens and pen. He says that in order to appreciate our world, we must investigate a destination as part of the human condition. In his new book, The Photographing Tourist, David takes us to remote places around the world through his award-winning images and stories, and he offers valuable techniques and tips that will help anyone develop the well-trained eye of a travel photographer. David, welcome to World Footprints. Hi, thank you for having me. 
You know, congratulations on your beautiful photo book. Uh, we have really enjoyed flipping through the pages and experiencing different cultures uh, through your images. And I understand that it took a lot of people to convince you to publish this book. Why is that, and what was the turning point for you? Well, it, it's a lot of work, obviously, and putting it all together. The, the book is, is basically a collection of photographs, tips, advice, insights, and stories from my work as a travel writer and photographer pretty much over the last decade or so. But I think what makes my story a little bit different than other professional travel journalists is that almost all of my work has been created on an organized tour with a planned itinerary and often traveling with with a group of strangers. Those are painful. I mean, we we've done this. We, you know, we have traveled uh together and sometimes when you're around even a small group of people, it's very difficult to concentrate, to get, you know, those money shots uh, or just get those those images and, and experience um, the culture because of all of the, the distractions. But you coin yourself as a photographing tourist, and that's the name of your book, The Photographing Tourist. What exactly is that? How do you distinguish a photographing tourist from a tourist? Well, it, it, the, I'm a professional photographer and travel journalist, and when you're on tour, it's a very different set of circumstances, and a lot of the trips that I have been on are tours that I have designed and led or escorted for other tour operators. I led a group of 25 on a trip through India for a AAA club. So the work that I have done is as a tourist, on a tour with an itinerary, and I think that's where the distinction I would draw. Uh, as a, a tourist photographer, you don't have the luxury of coming back when the light is better or on a different day. You have to work with what you have and make the most of the 30 minutes or the hour you have before you're moving on to the next place. It's a very challenging way to work, especially as a professional. Now, David, you've said that a camera and an imagination are the two elements that will turn a tourist into a photographer. Explain that. Well, it goes back to dealing with that 30 minutes. And the worst thing in the world for a working photographer to hear is we need everybody back on the bus in 30 minutes. So you have to be creative. You have to be imaginative to get the shots that you can get within the environment and the time frame you have. I've actually grown to enjoy that challenge of that deadline over the years uh, that is self-imposed by an itinerary. Uh, so part of my, the story I'm telling is how to work in those conditions and how to see what other people are looking at. And you know, I don't really care what kind of camera you're using. I think great travel images can be captured with anything, including you know, phones, obviously, these days. Speaking of phones and this realm of digital photography, clearly uh, one doesn't need to be a professional to uh, capture great images today. Even some of the most uh, outstanding images we see are now scattered throughout the Internet. So what do you think really is kind of the separator today between professional photography and amateur photography, given that the tools are essentially available to everyone? Well, the camera is a tool, and 
there are some really lousy photographs that have been made with the most expensive cameras on the market. And a professional photographer can make great imagery with anything. You know, part of it is that learning, part of it is the seeing what other people look at, part of it is kind of understanding light subject and composition and some of the basics uh, as a starting point. But where I would go next is truly engaging. And I think that's where a lot of amateurs, a lot of novice photographers don't take that next step. There's nothing more difficult for a tourist photographer than approaching a stranger in a foreign land and asking to take their picture. It takes courage. And I think that's where the people can learn, they can use the camera to enhance and enrich their travel experiences. Mm -hmm. Speaking of images of, of people, you in your book, The Photographing Tourist, you have a lot of beautiful images of citizens from around the world. And Ian and I listened to a, a panel interview not too long ago uh, between two photographers who talked about the ethics of photographing people. Uh, one photographer said that she always asked for a release and the other one said she just asked for permission and then provides the the subject that she photographs with a, a, a Polaroid of the picture. Is there a line that uh, or an understanding that photographers, even amateur photographers, should have when photographing people uh, during a tour? Yeah, it is, a, it is a challenging thought, especially when people want to be compensated, especially in the developing world. Um, the, I, don't, uh, I don't have a model release. Most of the work that I have ever done is for editorial use. Uh, so unless you're using an image to promote a product, a model release isn't necessary. Uh, I'm, my images are editorialist illustrations. But it's still about respect, and it's still about taking the opportunity to confront somebody. And a camera can very easily be a barrier between people or something for a tourist to hide behind. But it can also be a bridge across cultures that can change your travel experience, change the way you interact with people, and ultimately change the meaning of your photographs by approaching somebody in a foreign land. And most of the time, the answer is going to be no, and, and people will wave you off. They don't want to be photographed necessarily. But when someone says yes, for one brief moment, you've been given a gift, a chance to connect with another human being in a very personal way. Mm -hmm. I agree, but do you feel sometimes that the camera kind of gets in between you and, and that person that you're photographing? No, I, the exact opposite. I, the, the camera is my way of bridging that cultural divide. And, and like I said, when somebody gives me a nod of approval and I can show them the image on the, in the back of the camera, I'm making an authentic human connection. I'm using the camera as a tool to approach somebody. And clearly, you know, in a lot of the work that I do, language is an issue. And I, sometimes I have a translator, often not. But the connection I'm making is genuine genuinely human. And some of those images that I created are some of my most special moments of chance encounters while I travel. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are exploring the pages of the world through The Photographing Tourist, a new book by award-winning travel writer and photographer David Noyes. 
The photographing tourist inspires a deeper exploration of the world along with a series of tips and advice to help the traveler capture more revealing stories through a camera lens. We have more information about the photographing tourist and David Noy's work on this show page at our website, worldfootprints.com. And, you know, and I, as I flip through the book, I mean, I identified several images and, and the majority of them, my favorite images, and I, and I, I can't really say I have a favorite image in, in your book because they're all gorgeous, uh, but I love the older Women, the kind of like apple-faced um, women with who smile. I mean, there's just something so beautiful and joyous uh, about them. And, um, and and I tend, as when I'm photographing on travel, I tend to focus on the faces. And so I, I appreciated the the work that you did in your book. And you know, you generously shared many beautiful images from around the world. Uh, I know that Brazil was your first international trip, and sometimes your first always makes the uh, the lasting uh, impression. But is there a destination that you have in your book, that you photographed in your book, The Photographing Tourist, that has been the most impactful for you? Well, I tend to uh, frame my memories, if you will, by an experience, not necessarily a destination. I enjoy going places that take me outside of my comfort zone and challenging my understanding of the world. And some of those are, at this point, developing countries and cultures that are just totally unfamiliar to me that I have never experienced before. Um, One of the most recent places I've been is Myanmar, uh, which is just recently opened up for American tourists to to visit. And the people there were were as curious about me as I was about them, and they don't see a lot of Americans there. It was a very exciting experience, and to have an opportunity to communicate with people uh, is, is one of my most cherished responses. So I don't, I don't know that there's a destination necessarily that jumps out at me. I, I've returned to East Africa a lot. Um, I really enjoy photographing indigenous cultures, and some of them are vanishing now, and a lot of them are in transition of how do they actually uh, educate their children to compete in a modern world and still retain some of their cultural ancient past. In the photographing tourist, uh, you've scattered tips throughout the book. What do you consider to be the most important pieces of advice uh, for a photographer, amateur, professional? Well, I'll frame that in a couple of ways. You know, there I've got some technical shorts that I that I include in there, as well as some advice from a technical standpoint. I think if if you can start to understand and train yourself to recognize the quality, color, and direction of light and master just a couple uh, compositional tools like the rule of thirds and some of those kind of things, I think you've gone a long way to improving your imagery. Um, the, the other is more of ad- advice of how to go about interacting with people, where some of the lines are in cultural situations, especially in spiritual situations where uh, tourists will find themselves in unfamiliar situations and just not have a real good understanding of what is respectful. 
David, you know, we talked a lot about travel, the power of travel. Travel really is transformative, and you alluded to such in uh, your book. And I know it clearly impacted you to the point of you creating a foundation called Innocent Eyes. Tell us about that and what led to the creation of your foundation. Well, as I traveled, especially in the developing world, more and more the stories that I was interested in telling were the stories about the children that I was meeting along the edges of my adventures, the, the marginalized kids that would follow along as you know I made a tour through their homeland. And every community leader that I spoke with, every tribal elder that I would speak with and ask, what can we do to help? Almost always the answer was the same, educate the children. And two years ago, I started Innocent Eyes Project as a way to give back a little bit. As tourists, we enter the world of children and meeting children, visiting schools and orphanages can be some of our most memorable experiences. But they can also be damaging to that local community. The children, you know, we leave with a warm and fuzzy feeling about having a wonderful uh, interaction with some of the, the cute children of the developing world. But for a lot of these kids, their lives are nothing, there's nothing cute about them. They're, they live a life of poverty. And for a brief moment, you know, they're visited by some rich foreigners, and then we go home, often, you know, leaving nothing behind. We take our pictures, we take our memories, but we're not leaving anything behind. So Innocent Eyes Project was a way for me to start leaving something behind and to start connecting tourists with some of the opportunities to actually make a difference. And I must say, Ed, you have a chapter about Innocent Eyes uh, in your your book, The Photographing Tourist. David, it's been a pleasure. It's um, it, it was wonderful to talk to you again. And once again, congratulations on your your beautiful photo book. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. The Photographing Tourist is available on Amazon and through David Noy's website at noisetravel.com. Noise is spelled N-O-Y-E-S. For more information on the Innocent Eyes Project, visit InnocentEyesProject.org. Next in our destination quick hit, let's visit Navarre Beach, Florida with Julie Morgan. If we were writing the first chapter of our Navarre Beach story, what would that chapter be? Well, I would like you to know that our first chapter of our story would be that we have the most amazing beaches in Florida. They are the Emerald Coast Green Waters, along with the white sand beaches that are absolutely world-class. We have Gulf Island National Seashore, undeveloped, untouched, protected, uh, world-class, world-class beaches that still have the sand dunes and the sand oats. And we have a very old Florida feel to where, where Navarre Beach is. It's, uh, it's not built up with high rises. It's, it's, uh, it's just gorgeous. Um, we're a very inviting, friendly community. And if you want to get more into the busy stuff, you can drive for 20 minutes over to Pensacola Beach and, and get into the Blue Angels Museum and all that great stuff or go 
15 minutes east of us and go do the world-class shopping. But if you want to stay with us, you can do some awesome paddle boarding, great world-class fishing off of the Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico's longest pier. We do, we do have that where we are. author Patricia Cornwell has sold over a hundred million books of forensic thrillers. 25 years ago, Patricia introduced medical examiner Dr. K. Scarpetta in her first book, Postmortem, and that paved the way for an explosion of entertainment featuring forensic science as an integral element in solving murders. Dr. K. Scarpetta investigates another suspicious murder with many twists and turns in Cornwell's newest book, Depraved Heart. Much congratulations for 25 years with Kay Scarpetta. Well, thank you. It's uh, kind of hard to believe. I know. I mean, you created such a franchise with her, and I know your start was a bit rocky. What kept you going after that first denial uh, by the publisher? Um, It's just something that I was very determined to do. And I think the secret to it, and I would advise this to anybody who is doing a project that you're hoping to sell, is once you have finished something um, and it starts making the rounds, whether it's a script or a book or anything, any form of art, um, go ahead and start something else while you're waiting because uh, it makes it a lot easier if you get disappointing news in the early days of your career if you're already doing the next thing. I think that's why I didn't quit back in the early days when I was trying to get Scarpetta going because by the time my first book would be rejected by everybody, I'd already written a second one. But believe it or not, Postmortem, the very first in the Scarpetta series, which was exactly 25 years ago, mm-hmm. um, that, that was my fourth attempt at this. Um, and I tell you the truth, I think if that one had really fallen through, I, pro- I might very well have quit. I think I would have taken that as um, a big signpost that maybe I needed to head out of town and go somewhere else. <laughs> oh, well, we're, we're we're all very happy that you didn't quit and, and well, kept going. You. And it's a wonderful lesson for, for all of us. Now, your new book, Depraved Heart, could have really come from straight from the headlines following the death of Freddie Gray and the charge of second-degree murder by one of the Baltimore police officers. How did you come up with the depraved heart storyline? Each book, in some sense, is going to follow a little bit of what happened in the previous one. So in Depraved Heart, I'm very much picking up on what happened to Scarpetta at the end of Flesh and Blood when she is attacked while she's scuba diving down in Florida when she's doing evidence recovery in the ocean. And so this is the aftermath of the presence of this new predator that's that's on the horizon um, that is wreaking such havoc in the life of Scarpetta and her compatriots. When I began the book, 
one of the things that I wanted to do is, for particularly for people who have never read any of the Scarpetta books, I wanted to introduce her to everyone in a way as if they've never met her at all. And in some cases, that will be true that some people haven't. So I thought, how do you do that? Well, today with technology, there's all sorts of interesting ways that you can bring the past to a screeching halt right at your front door and look at it at close range. Mm -hmm. So I did this with surveillance techniques and devices and things like that so that you know we could really begin to get a sense of the evil that's lurking and as you know the depraved heart is an archaic legal term which yes. that's why we've seen it in connection with the baltimore cases it just shows an absolute utter disregard for human life you were talking about some of the research you did and following the storyline of scuba diving and i happen to be a scuba diver as well and cool. I, I know that you actually took up scuba diving because you wrote a scene where Kate Scarpetta was scuba diving. How have you enjoyed that chapter in your life? When I am doing research for a Scarpetta novel, if there's something that I want to include in the book, let's say scuba diving for an underwater crime scene, underwater body recovery, for example, or flying a helicopter or somebody doing something on a motorcycle or various types of weapons, within reason I try to experience all this so that I can describe it. And also it gives me creative energy. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you're saying you were just talking about that you scuba dive too, so then you completely understand. Yes. When you are underwater and seeing something eerie that's been there for hundreds of years, like a, sh a shipwreck, there is nothing that takes the place of witnessing that for yourself. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to best-selling crime novelist Patricia Cornwell about her life and her new thriller, Depraved Heart. Right, and it opens up, a, for me, a brand new world. I mean, as a travel journalist, that's uh, that's a, an adventure that I love, and, and that raises a question for me. Your life has evolved beyond Case Scarpetta. You've written cookbooks, biographies. Um, you've gone into the academic realm, uh, research. How do you find time just to unwind? Do you travel? Is there a place that you like to go? Oh, well, I, I love the dive trips. If you can immerse yourself in another world for a while, like the, the Keys or Florida or the Bahamas or Bermuda, what, whatever, sometimes in, in my case, three or four days of something like that is like weeks of, of time maybe for someone else because it just completely jump starts my computer. But what I've learned to do, because I'm a chronically busy person, if you write, if you're a writer, you're really never finished with your work because there's always the next thing hanging over your head. I try to find little bits and pieces on a daily basis, even if it's going for a walk or do, doing something where maybe I'm listening to some music. Of course, Stacy and I, that's my partner, we always have so much fun spending time together and talking and getting with friends. So you just you learn to take it rest or play because the child in us is the creative one, so you have to do a little bit of playing or that child gets grumpy. That, that's wonderful to hear because I was wondering, you know, when I read some of your books, my adrenaline starts rushing when you're writing these intense scenes. And I know that when you're writing those scenes, you have to be experiencing the same level of intensity that readers are when they're reading your work. And, and I was wondering how you come down from that, particularly because you're such a prolific writer. You're cranking out one or two books a year. You have been for decades now. 
it's an ongoing challenge to keep your energy level where it needs to be. And especially if you're a creative person, I, I look at it as I have some sort of interior camera and I'm projecting something onto a blank screen and it takes a tremendous amount of wattage or voltage, you might say, to do that. And so you have to find ways to keep that energy level up or your you know, your ability to project those things is going to start to waver after a while. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's having adventures, doing things that make me a little bit insecure. You know, when I go out on the firing range with, with these big rough and tumble people that I work with who are absolute experts, it's an insecure thing for me because it's, I'm not anywhere near accomplished like they are. And sometimes you're handling things that are extraordinarily dangerous, whether it's a, you know, an assault rifle or a helicopter. And that's not always, it's, you know, I, I take it very seriously when I'm doing things like that. And it's um, not easy. It's demanding. But that is part of where I get my energy from, mm -hmm. doing things like that. Now, many of our listeners are, are great fans. And I call them Lucy Files because they love Lucy. And one such listener, Robin Bulls, from Oak Bluff, Massachusetts, on Martha's Vineyard, wanted to ask if you have plans to create a series based on Lucy. You know, I've had a lot of people that have for years wanted Lucy to spin off into her own realm. I don't necessarily, per se, have a plan for that, but, you know, because the Scarpetta series is, is under option, and whether it ends up being a movie or ultimately television, there's no telling what happens once you get into that realm. Well, Patricia, it has been a treat for me as a fan to, to have you on World Footprints Radio, and I thank you so much for, for spending time with us. Well, thank you for the great interview. <laughs> My pleasure. To read more about Depraved Heart and to view the catalog of books by Patricia Cornwell, visit her website at patriciacornwell.com. We also have a link to Patricia's website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll go into our Best of archives to share our interview with philanthropist David Rockefeller, Jr., as he prepares to circumnavigate the Americas to raise awareness about the health of our oceans. But in a moment, we'll travel to the Children's Museum of Indianapolis to explore the cultural experiences and historical artifacts that will be on exhibit, including fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, visit our website, worldfootprints.com. Many places would offer an opportunity to speak to an astronaut or a historical figure or even touch real dinosaur fossils. Where could you see fragments of the Dead Sea Scroll or view the terracotta warriors outside of Israel or China? The answer is the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. We sat down with Kimberly Harms from the Children's Museum of Indianapolis at the Travel Media Showcase to learn more about this special facility and its mission to foster global citizenship. Hi, I'm Kimberly Harms, and I'm from Indianapolis at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. And we're probably best known for our dinosaurs because we have huge dinosaurs bursting out of the building and peeking into the building. And those are, of course, pretend dinosaurs, but we have rare, real dinosaur fossils inside, including one of only four mummified dinosaurs in the world where you can see 
the actual musculature of the dinosaur as it was, in essence, frozen in time or fossilized, skin impressions. We have a fun dinosaur that is a real fossil, first of its genus and species, called Dracorex hogwartsia, and it's named after the J.K. Rowling book series, The Hogwarts School. So we had a naming contest. And children chose Draco Rex because dragon-like, and they thought that dragons should be at Hogwarts. So that's very fun, and a lot of other interesting dinosaurs as well. We have a combination of cultural exhibits that are about art, history, a lot of science. We were voted one of the top three science museums in the nation, so I think a lot of people are surprised about that. And then we also have a lot of exhibits that foster cultural awareness and understanding. So we have the power of children that explores the child of the 40s, and Frank, and how she lived through the Holocaust and what she did to stay positive and how she fought the prejudice of her, her religion. Then Ruby Bridges, who was the first black child to integrate schools in the South, and then that was in the 60s, and then Ryan White, who was diagnosed with HIV-AIDS after a hemophilia blood transfusion. He was bullied and picked on and wouldn't attend school because they wouldn't allow him to. He fought for the right to attend school, even though he didn't have much time to live because he felt education was so important. So it's a great stepping-off point for families to talk to their kids about, you know what, if you're picked on, look at what these kids endured, and they persevered. You can, too. And I think that's a really positive message to share with kids. Another fostering cultural awareness and understanding is Take Me There China, which will be there for the next four years, and it's all about modern-day China. So you get to use chopsticks, you get to see performing artists that are either shadow puppet people (laughs) or dancers. We have dragon dancers, and we have a dragon dance several days of the week. We have mask changers from time to time, long pot tea pourers. It's a lot of rich cultural experience there. And one that is a temporary exhibit that will only be there from beginning of September through the end of January into February of 2016 is called National Geographic Sacred Journeys. And it's all about the religions of the world and learning how people who might live just down the street or around the world How do they worship? Why do they worship? What is their faith? And we'll have some really incredible artifacts as part of that exhibit. The last time we spoke, you had the terracotta warriors here from China. And this year you have the uh, fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It takes a lot of planning, a lot of paperwork, red tape to go through. How is a children's museum able to obtain such valuable artifacts and what are you planning for next year because I know there has to be a new very dynamic uh, exhibit coming next year. I think we're very blessed obviously to have great partnerships with people around the world that enable us to get some of these artifacts on loan because we have a proven track record and they're very picky about how their things are taken care of just as you and I would be. I wouldn't want somebody messing up my collection or my important thing. So, for example, the Terracotta Warriors, they had to have a certain temperature, certain humidity. They had to be shipped a certain way. These things are thousands and thousands of years old and truly are priceless. You cannot replace them. So we're very, very careful and cognizant of that. We have an incredible collections team that is very picky about how they take care of everything. We have the world's largest glassblown sculpture by Dale Chihuly, and that's fascinating to watch take, being taken care of. We have guys who repel from the roof and clean it with Swiffers so that they can get into all the little nooks and crannies. So there's just a plethora of things they do to take care of it, and I think that track record has proven so that future donors 
are willing to, to share with us. For Sacred Journeys, we have over 25 lenders that individual contracts for each individual object to display for the public. The Children's Museum of Indianapolis is not the type of children's museum I grew up with. You seem to have a deeper mission. Tell us about your mission, the history or the genesis of your your mission and, and why you guys are really trying to grow global citizens. Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, we're education-based. It's all about family learning and integrating that for every generation of the family. So we have a lot of great-grandparents that come with their grandkids, their grandparents, their moms and dads. And so we want people to be able to have very hands-on fun things to learn, but also to be able to reach into those deeper conversations that maybe you don't know how to approach at home. You know, you you don't know how to talk about racism or where do I begin or how do I do it? And so there are great suggestions for doing that. But it's really all about intergenerational learning. We're going our 90th year this year, so we've had quite some time to refine our goals. And so I think one thing that surprises people is we really have a lot. We have 120,000 artifacts. So, for example, if we're talking about a meteor. We have a, you know, we have rocks from meteors, or we have an astronaut on staff who talks about those kinds of things in relevant ways that you can understand. And I mean, where else in the world really can you go and just talk to an astronaut? <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to go to the space center, but I'm sure that the protocol to get through all those lines would be pretty difficult. So, um, so things like that, talking to real people that have lived these things. Ruby Bridges, who was the first to integrate schools in the South, she comes and talks to people at the museum. Same thing with Jeannie White Ginder and her son Ryan had HIV, was, you know, nationally, worldwide publicized how he was picked on and, and bullied and the struggles he had. And she comes and talks to people all the time about everything from AIDS to they might have glasses and, you know, they just have gotten braces or anything that a child or an adult has struggled with. And she is so genuine and caring. And, you know, we ha- I say this because we have Kleenex boxes there for a reason. People get very emotional. And it's a, a way for them to talk about it and get through some difficult times they might not feel somebody else can relate to them about. And then there's always the fun, you know, always the pop culture. We've got Hot Wheels every year for the next four years. We've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles this fall. Next year we'll have Doc McStuffins. So we have lots of fun things that also have lessons. You know, when you talk about Hot Wheels, there's a lot of science, technology, engineering, and math that goes into that. How do cars go faster? We have 30 race cars, 33 that compete in the Indy 500. This past year, we had over half of them come visit the museum with their families and talk to people about what makes their car go faster. And I think Santa Claus comes in on a race car, too. Of course he has to come in on a race car. (laughs) It's the racing capital of the world. Kids love it. Santa loves it. The race car driver loves it, you know. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, Kim, it was a lovely seeing you again. Thank you so much for sharing. It was my pleasure. Take care. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're taking a virtual tour of the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. To learn more about the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, visit childrensmuseum.org. In this destination quick hit, let's visit Litchfield Hills and Fairfield County in Connecticut with the help of Janet Sarah. 
were to visit Litchfield Hills in Fairfield County, Connecticut, what would that first chapter be? Well, I think I would start off in Fairfield County um, with a boat ride to Sheffield Island. It's a, a hour boat ride out to the island on a beautiful boat. You tour a lighthouse. You can see a bird sanctuary, and best of all, you can see the outline of New York City from this island. It's really quite a wonderful experience. From there, I think I would go to one of the best examples of the Second Empire homes in the United States called the Lockwood Matthews Mansion. If you're lucky enough, you can get a tour, a behind-the-scenes tour of this mansion that has a bowling alley that's bigger than the Biltmore's in the basement. From there, I'd head up to the Litchfield Hills, which is known as one of the most scenic places in the United States for a drive. It's an area of great natural beauty with wonderful country inns and cozy bed and breakfast, antique shops, craft and art galleries. Um, it's a very special and magical place. It is the epitome of New England. David Rockefeller Jr. is director and former chairman of Rockefeller & Company. He's an active participant in the nonprofit arena, especially in the areas of environment, the arts, public education, and philanthropy. When he served as a member of the Pew Oceans Commission, the organization issued a comprehensive report on the health of the U.S. marine waters, and David said that the report opened his eyes to the five-alarm emergency in the marine environment, and he was inspired to take action. He co-founded Sailors for the Seas and prepared to embark on a trip around the Americas to raise awareness about ocean health. In the latest of our Best of interviews, we go back to 2009 when we spoke to David shortly before he embarked on Sailing Around the Americas. What is it about the singular environmental issue of ocean health that has attracted you? My work on oceans began with my sitting on the Pew Oceans Commission in the early part of this decade, which educated me about the perils to ocean health. I'm a lifelong sailor, lucky mm-hmm. enough to have a place near the water um, mm-hmm. summers, and so I've always loved the ocean, but until recently, I didn't know how many problems they had in terms of ocean health. Just to name some obvious ones, a lot of pollution coming both from the land, from ships, from people dropping plastic in the water, garbage, etc. And then big problems, as is well known, I think, now, with the fisheries, declining fish populations, yes. um, bycatch, uh, fish farming that sometimes is not healthy for human consumption. So those are some of the biggest 
little bit about your organization, Sailors for the Sea, and the Ocean Watches expedition around the Americas. I'm delighted to. Sailors for the Sea was my response to sitting on the Pew Oceans Commission and asking myself, what could I do to help the ocean? As a lifelong sailor, I realized, and then having uh, researched it a bit, verified that sailors and other recreational boaters really have not been engaged in protecting the recreational resource that they enjoy so much, whereas fly fishermen have been engaged for decades in protecting their streams, trout unlimited, etc., birders protecting the flyways and marshes, hunters protecting forests where they love to hunt, etc., but boaters had never gotten engaged as ocean stewards. So that's what Sailors for the Sea is about, to engage sailors and other boaters in protecting the ocean. Ocean Watch Around the Americas Expedition is a project co-parented by Sailors for the Sea, now located in Newport, Rhode Island, and Pacific Science Center, located in Seattle, Washington. And the Science Center, as you might imagine by its name, is really a science museum, hands-on science museum that focuses on uh, younger people, children, Mm -hmm. whereas we, Sailors for the Sea, focus on on boaters as our audience, and together we dreamed up this idea, along with Captain Mark Schrader, of taking a sailboat around the American continent, 25,000 miles through the Arctic ice, which we've already accomplished and then around Cape Horn and returning to Seattle. What are some of the significant issues that people need to be mindful of as it relates to the health of our oceans and seas? There, there are some of these issues that are very palpable, and there's some that are hidden and even more important. I'll start with the, the palpable ones. Sea level rise coming from global warming. That's something that whether you live in Bangladesh or Cape Cod, or Chesapeake Bay, or New York City, or Venice, you're going to be concerned about ocean level rise. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's definitely an ocean health uh, issue. Another one that's fairly obvious is declining fish stocks. You know, if you used to go out and catch flounder on the sea bottom, or if you're a sport fisherman and used to get tuna more easily, you know that those fish are much more scarce these days. 90% declines in fish years in the big mm. of the ocean. So those are things that are pretty palpable and very important. Then there's some hidden issues like ocean acidification, the pH of the ocean, the acidity of oceans. And as you can imagine, just as true in our lakes is true in our lakes, if the water gets too acidic, uh, the fish and in terms of CO2, crustacea that live in it don't survive, may die or don't form their shells. And that's the same with coral reefs, extensive mm-hmm. CO2 dumped in the ocean, which is mostly land-generated and man-made principally, is turning the ocean toward acidity at a rate that's alarming and could actually turn out to be the biggest problem of ocean health. I'm just curious, are there specific areas along your expedition path that are of considerable concern to the ocean's health overall? 
Ocean Watch, the boat is going to make about 30, 31 stops as it goes around, New York being one, Miami, et cetera, and South America. And we already know that when we get to Chile, for example, that the biggest issue there is the food security and the health of the farmed fish. And in the last year, the FDA actually refused entry to this country of a lot of the farmed fish that Chile was offering, and that's a, that's a big industry down there. Mm-hmm. So to visit some of those fish farms, find out what people are saying about them. That'd be one example. Then in the Caribbean, San Juan being our principal stop after Miami, we'll be talking about coral reefs. How are they doing? Why are coral reefs important? Are, are they important? They're really nurseries, breeding ground for small fish that hide in the, in the corals when they're young. And corals are under stress because of ocean temperature, pollution, mm-hmm. etc. So those are examples of things that we'll especially be looking for in Miami, San Juan in one case, in Chile in another. Now, the data that's being collected, I know you intend on sharing with the, with the public. Has the cruise industry worked with you or are you communicating with them? Because certainly, you know, the cruise industry has been under fire because of the carbon wakes that those large liners leave as well. Yes, and you know, we collaborate with a group called Oceana, and Oceana is a campaign-oriented ocean conservation NGO. They have been working with some of the large cruise lines and successfully convincing them through legal tactics that they need to treat their onboard waste before the water is returned to the oceans, etc. Good. We were in touch with Holland America early on during this expedition planning phase, and they have been retrofitting their boats that go to Alaska and so that they are not dumping in the waters uh, of mm-hmm. Alaska. So, yes, cruise ships have been a target of concern. Yes, I'm glad to say their behavior is improving <laughs> with some encouragement. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're sharing one of our best-of interviews with philanthropist David Rockefeller, Jr. David, I wanted to come back to uh, some of the uh, ocean health issues, and perhaps you could talk about some of the experiments and monitoring that Ocean Watch is undertaking on this expedition that might be of interest to our listening audience. There is a camera, as I was saying, mounted on the stern, that has five or six lenses and is taking virtually every minute of the day photographs of the water that Ocean Watch is passing through and over. And the purpose of that camera is principally to look at jellyfish density. Now, why would they be interested? Why would anybody be interested in that? It turns Mm -hmm. out that there's an inverse relationship between the general health of, let's say, the fin fish, the ones we principally eat, and jellyfish. So the more jellyfish there are, the higher the probability that the fin fish are not in a healthy condition. So we're counting the jellyfish 
visually, and we're sending to a lab in, I believe, Washington State samples of jellyfish that we pick up in a net so they can actually look at the health of the jellyfish and type of jellyfish that we're seeing as we go around. The reason we're studying it is in using jellyfish as an indicator of ocean health. And I think our listeners can visit the website aroundtheamericas.org to uh, to view this camera. Now, I understand you will be uh, traveling with the team when they reach South America. Is that correct? That is true. I'm going to join Ocean Watch in a small port called Puerto Williams in Chile just before the boat goes around Cape Horn, the famous Cape Horn, and we'll round Cape Horn, hopefully in reasonable weather, and mm-hmm. then we'll go up the west coast of Chile through the archipelago that's so remarkable, in which some of these fish farms will be located. Our listeners know that our value with with our show is responsible travel, and and, and we are a show that celebrates the responsible traveler. How can our listeners support your mission with Sailors for the Seas? Well, that's a great question. Two or three things I can think of. If you go to the sailorsforthesea.org website, you'll find a membership category on the website, and you can join as a member of Sailors for the Sea and get our bulletins and special discounts on marine supplies, etc. Similarly, if you go to aroundtheamericas.org, there's a place where you can support the expedition. It costs us $50,000 a month keep this boat going around the Americas. So uh, we're still looking for financial support. And finally, be good to the ocean. You know, don't throw things into the ocean that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Be conscious of local legislation and regulations that are protecting your bays and oceans. And attend beach cleanup, support Oceana, support ocean-related conservation organizations. So there's lots that can be done. Absolutely. And as a scuba diver, I, I truly appreciate our listening audience getting involved in, uh, in your mission and, and keeping our oceans clean. To learn more about David Rockefeller's ocean conservation work, visit sailorsforthesea.org. The common theme throughout today's show was on social responsibility. We saw that throughout each of our guest interviews, certainly with the Davids. David Noyes and David Rockefeller, Jr. Right. And the the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, which has a focus to educate, entertain, but also help children understand important life lessons and immerse them in kind of a vicarious way, other cultures to understand the world. But also Patricia Cornwell's interview. I mean, who would have thought that a a crime writer um, would have a sense of social responsibility or would reflect that in her work, but we would expect that to be reflected in her life and as a scuba diver, um, which I enjoy talking to her about, frankly, you know, she experienced and appreciated another world and the importance of keeping that other world, i.e. the ocean world, also safe and preserved. 
And I know how much you enjoy Patricia Cornwell, and what I liked about her interview is just how down-to-earth, how her humanity came through in, in terms of how she uh, has to ground herself and be yes. involved in, in life just to keep her reading, to keep her passion alive. And it was really inspiring to hear from her about just not quitting, of having that second book already written when the first one goes out. And to keep it going. Keep it going after four rejections before her first novel. So that should inspire all of us never to quit. And our friend David Noyes, who we interviewed about his book, The Photographing Tours, what I really appreciated about that book is that it's more than a coffee table beautiful photo book he has his heart emanates throughout the book and he also shares etiquette which is very important as a traveler uh, and in and photographer when you go into sacred places also I appreciated very much the way he respectfully photographed um, an indigenous uh, tribe in Africa We've been on trips before where people just gawked, and it it made me as a traveler very uncomfortable. And I think that's uh, one of the things about David is that his his level of consciousness about what he's doing, even as a photographer, and sharing some of these lessons that will enable all travelers to be more conscientious when they're traveling and meeting different cultures and different peoples, uh, uh, just just knowing how our presence in, in some ways can lead to exploitation of children mm-hmm. and to not consciously participate in that. Those are things that you wouldn't necessarily think about when you're taking a picture, as uh, David alluded. He helps to break down that for us and to really help us stop and think about what we're doing. Right. And that's also really about uh, David Rockefeller. We had to go back to 2009, but to stop and think about what we're doing with our oceans in this uh, period of global warming. And he focused on some some basic things about ocean health, of not overfishing the oceans and um, being careful in terms of debris and those sorts of things mm-hmm. where we haven't thought about the plastics and just the impact these are having on fisheries and the acidity levels and all of those things about the oceans. And let's not forget the Children's Museum of Indianapolis and the work that they're doing, not just for children, but for families. I mean, it's an intergenerational facility. They bring incredible artifacts uh, to the museum for people to enjoy. Uh, The terracotta warriors, they have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we were just in Israel, and we know how protected those artifacts were. And for them to bring, be able to bring them here for other people to enjoy and to also share lessons and interviews uh, and chats with Famous people, astronauts, historical people. That is the high caliber of museum that I think the Indianapolis Children's Museum is a a very high caliber museum with a heart for for others, and and I appreciate that about them. As we close, we'd like to leave you with a thought from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Though we travel the world over to find the beautiful, we must carry it with us or we find it not. Thank you so much for joining us again today. We're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. 
World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.